really what we were trying to evaluate was how well is the the physical barrier between the GI and the animal um, established in these cattle. So cases that had a liver abscess and cases that did not. Because what we think happens is that there are some bacteria like fusobacterium from the GI tract that cross the gastrointestinal wall, get into the bloodstream, and then those bacteria translocate to the liver and they set up camp in the liver and create an abscess there in the liver. And so if there's a difference in the physical barriers between these animals, that may help us try to figure out um, how that happens or why that happens. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. High D from DSM Fermanish can help your cattle get the vitamin D they need this winter. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. We have a time and labor-saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting, and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen, and I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University. Our guest today has been with us before. He's back to tell us more about what's going on at K-State right now. Dr. Philip Lancaster earned a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture from Western Illinois University, Master's of Science in Animal Science, specializing in ruminant nutrition from University of Missouri, and a PhD in Animal Science from Texas A&M. He is interested in sustainable beef cattle production, a topic we're going to talk quite a bit about today. And among other things, his work involves identifying energy-efficient cattle and figuring out nutritional strategies to reduce methane emissions. So welcome back to the show, Philip. Thank you, Stephanie. It's good to be back. Excellent. Well, we're going to dive right in here. We were kind of talking in our pre-show. Um, so you've been on the show before, so maybe we'll just let you give kind of the short version of your origin story. Just remind listeners, if they haven't listened to one of your earlier episodes with us, um, you were one of our very first guests, I think, on the show. So probably back in November of 2022. Yeah, I think it's been probably about a year. So, yeah, I think yeah. it has been close to a year because we're recording this at the end of October in 2023. So tell our listeners just briefly how you ended up where you are today in the beef industry. Well, I mean, I grew up on a farm in Illinois and just liked agriculture. And um, during my undergrad, I always thought beef cattle was the most interesting. And I just kind of liked nutrition because just all it, it was just interesting, all the different stuff you could feed beef cattle and, and that kind of stuff. And so, um I ended up working at a feed yard for a little bit, and then um, by interaction with the consulting nutritionist, ended up coming back to graduate school. Thought that's what I originally wanted to do. 
then I got into academia and research and I really like solving problems and figuring things out. And so I've stayed in academia um, and in the beef cattle world, um, bounced around a little bit, been at several different universities across the country, um, but then uh, landed here at K-State about four years ago and um, have got a, a good uh, program started and a good niche with a nutrition health interaction uh, research program here uh, in the vet school at K-State. Excellent. I think that's always one of the things uh, from the outside looking in. It seems like K-State does really well facilitating that interaction between the vet school and the animal science folks there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, we have a pretty good collaboration. Excellent. Okay, so we were kind of talking in our pre-show, uh, well, we were I was complaining really in our pre-show conversation about some of the work we've been doing with dairy beef calves lately, and just talking about some of the, the challenges and the struggles and how do we help feedlot uh, managers and nutritionists figure out the right way to feed these critters to keep them as healthy as possible. And I think that's going to be a great place to start our conversation today, Philip. So I know this is something that your group has been focused on for the last few years. And I know lots of history of interest in things like liver abscesses there at K-State with folks like TG there. Um, We've had him on the show before, a great episode. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this project where you and your grad students kind of dug into some of the deads at the feedlot, trying to figure out some of the physiology of the animal that might actually be contributing to things like liver abscesses. Yeah. So we did a study a couple of summers ago where we necropsied deads at several feed yards um, and did that for a couple of months, June and July. And we were looking at lots of things. We did a full system, systemic necropsy um, from head to tail, looking at all different organ systems But the part that I was most interested in was the GI and the liver. And so we documented whether those animals had a liver abscess or not. And then we um, also documented any GI lesions and things like that. And then we took some samples from the rumen, the small intestine, and the colon to look at more histology of, of those tissues between uh, cases that had a liver abscess, and we did case controls that did not have a liver abscess. Um, and so some interesting things that we found um, when we looked at kind of demographic numbers, the um, cattle had a higher probability of having a liver abscess if they were a dairy-influenced animal, which makes sense. I'm um, <laughs> They had a higher probability of having a liver abscess if it was a steer. Um, And then there was a trend. It wasn't statistically significant, but there was a trend for increased probability in cattle that arrived at lighter body weights and cattle that were on feed longer at the time of death. Um, And so, which kind of makes sense to what we typically think of from a liver abscess perspective. It's long day feeding of high grain diets and and those type of things. Um, And then- Before you jump in, because I know where you're going. So before you tell us about some of the gut physiology differences that you saw, uh, maybe take it back a step for our listeners. And for those of us who may not deal with gut physiology every day, explain to us some of the measures that you did and tell us a little bit about what they mean. Okay. So we took um, rumen samples um, and a small intestine and colon, like I said. And really what we were trying to evaluate was 
how well is the the physical barrier between the GI and the animal um, established in these cattle? So cases that had a liver abscess and cases that did not. Because what we think happens is that there are some bacteria like fusobacterium from the GI tract that cross the gastrointestinal wall, get into the bloodstream, and then those bacteria translocate to the liver and they set up camp in the liver and create an abscess there in the liver. And so if there's a difference in the physical barriers between these animals, that may help us try to figure out um, how that happens or why that happens. And so in the rumen, we looked at things like the size of the papillae in the rumen, which are the kind of finger-like projections where VFAs are absorbed across the rumen wall, which are the energy source for the animal. And we also looked at the, the thickness of the epithelial layer um, in the rumen. And then in the small intestine, we looked at the size of the, the uh, villi, which again are, are finger-like projections in the small intestine that absorb nutrients. And then we looked at the size of the crypts, which the crypts are the part where the um, like immune cells are in the small intestine, where new uh, epi new epithelial cells are are created, and things like that. So they're like the regenerative part of the small intestine. And then in the colon, we looked at the thickness of the mucosa, and then in both the colon and the small intestine, we looked at the percentage of goblet cells in those tissues. And goblet cells are the cells that produce mucus. And so the GI tract in the small intestine and colon is lined with mucus that is part of that physical barrier between the microbes in the, the gut and the animal. And so if, if that mucus layer is altered, that may then obviously affect the ability of that animal to keep uh, pathogenic bacteria out. And so one of the, the interesting thing that we saw was really um, not, I guess not quite what I expected, was that everything trended to, tended to go the same direction, where the cases that had a liver abscess, they had smaller rumen papillae, they had thinner epithelial layer in the rumen, they had smaller villi in the small intestine and smaller crypts, they had fewer goblet cells in the small intestine and the colon. And not everything was statistically significant, but everything was trending the same direction, which was really unique in that we took lots of different measurements and everything is telling us kind of the same story, that there's a difference in the physical barrier of these cattle that have a liver abscess versus the ones that do not have a liver abscess. Yeah. So let me ask a couple of questions there real quick. Um, so I think that's so interesting to think about, um, you know, we, we've always thought about the, the rumen barrier as being one of the major players, right? So we think, oh, we got a calf that's on high grain for a long time. He's kind of burning out that rumen. He's causing sloughing of that rumen papillae, like you said, we don't absorb as much VFAs and now we're getting these bacteria that ship, you know, from the room into the blood and end up in the liver. The question is, then we have this kind of like wussy single cell layer, right? When we think about the small intestine and even down into the colon. And I've always thought 
gosh, it makes a lot more sense that the damage could potentially occur there than it would early on in the rumen. So tell me a little bit more about like physically, what did those rumens look like? So if you had a, a case where you were like, hey, this, this animal had an abscess and then you got your case controls dead on the same day or whatever, died of bloat or something else that wasn't an abscess. Mm-hmm. Physically, besides just having those shorter papillae, did you see more scarring? Do you see differences in those rumen or not? Well, that was the interesting thing, too, is that we did not see very – there were some scars, um, but in, but there were just not very many. And not the, and the, the association between having a, an active lesion in the, in the rumen or whatever, and whether that animal had a liver abscess or not was not very strong at all. In fact, it wasn't statistically significant. And so – that just raises a lot of questions to us, and there's been some other studies that kind of point to the same thing, that that, that association is just not as strong as we would like it to be to be a causative um, mechanism. And so, I, like you said, and there are some groups around the country, I think, that are looking at small intestine and lower GI as possible sources of bacteria that are getting into the liver. Absolutely. I know that's work that like Lance Baumgard's group is doing, and I'm sure lots of others looking at basically hindgut acidosis instead of Mm -hmm. rumen acidosis, right? And what's the contribution there? So, okay, the mucus thing I think is really interesting as well. Have you dug into literature or your grad students dug into the literature at all to see, you know, is what would be the advantage to these animals of having less mucus or why would potentially, you know, dairy influenced animals, if you had more of those, why would they potentially have less mucus production in the GI tract? You know, that's a good question. And I don't know. I don't know if it's, so one of the thought, is it a genetic thing where they just, that's just the, the nature of the beast? Or is it maybe a G by E where when we put these animals on a high grain diet, they have, a, they don't have the ability to mm-hmm. say ramp up that mucus production or something to have to make that barrier stronger as particularly like in you said the hind gut we have acidosis in the hind gut then they don't have the ability to increase that mucus production to protect that epithelial layer and then we have a situation where bacteria could get across the epithelium in the hind gut and so um i think there's there's a lot of questions um related to that you know some of the things i've been reading and and trying to dig into more are things related to the microbiome in the gut. And there's, there's some data that indicates that the microbiome can influence the physiology of the gut, the immune um, function in the gut, the, the mucus layers or the amount and, and, and things like that. And so there's a there's a crosstalk, so um, particularly like some studies where they created animals that were sterile. Um, they took them away right at birth and didn't allow them to put you know I don't remember exactly how, but anyway they kind of kept that microflora from developing, and they are much more susceptible to disease, and they are they have differences in that gut physiology. Um, and so that's kind of interesting and, you know, I've been thinking, so in a, you know, let's take the dairy system versus our native beef system. 
you know, we pull that calf away from the dam, you know, right at birth. And so there's no transfer of gut microflora from the dam to the calf like we have in a beef system. And so this, the increased prevalence of liver abscess in these dairy beef animals is that partly because the rumen microflora is different? Um, and, or, and so then is there some way that we could manipulate that microflora to make it, to make it stronger, um, more, more similar to a native beef animal? You know, there's, there's all kinds of questions that have been coming to my mind, um, digging through things, trying to figure out why those animals might be different. Yeah. I was thinking it would be really interesting to do a study where maybe you had like, God forbid anybody who's done this wouldn't want to do it, but um, like a duodenally cannulated animal, um, especially of like dairy beef influence versus native beef, and then be able to feed them like in a Latin square kind of thing, the different, you know, high grain versus high forage with adaptation times for your microbes and stuff, and be able to do biopsies via that cannula to be able to look at the same types of things, right? You could look at the villus depth or crypt depth, villus height. Um, your gobulate cells, everything else, right? Like that would be that would be really interesting to see because I'm wondering because you said kind of the magic words, which is adaptation, right? Which is mm-hmm. are they, you know, they come into the feedlot and they're like, well, I've never seen anything like this before. I'm not designed to sit here in this pen and eat a steam flake corn based diet, right? Like, like I was selected to make milk and I happened to be a boy and that didn't work out for me, and you know, <laughs> yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, you know, if we think about those animals that end up end up in our feedlot. Yeah, no, that's a really cool idea, Stephanie. So I've had the idea of maybe duodenally cannulated or um, some way of, of dosing starch just to the hindgut and avoid where you could separate the rumen versus hindgut effect. Um, but yeah, but I hadn't thought about taking a biopsy through the cannula. That would be pretty cool to be able to, to actually measure differences in the live animal that way. Yeah. And I love the idea of doing like a albumasal infusion, right? Like you're talking about mm-hmm. to, to skip the room. And I think that's cool. Um, I'm pretty sure Terry Ingle and some others at Colorado State have done duodenal biopsies through kind of a duodenal cannula to be able, they were looking at some mineral transporters and things like that in the intestine. But mm-hmm. yeah, that would be super interesting to see how that differed. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that microbiome stuff would be different. We know that even though we might think of the rumen, for example, as one big homogenous black box of bacteria, that's super not true. There's all these different microclimates that happen throughout there. And you and I have both done work on feed efficiency projects in the past. And that's always been one of my hypotheses was that, you know, we need to figure out when we're selecting for these animals that have better feed efficiency, how much of that is actually coming from the bull, who's a heck of a lot easier to propagate his genetics Mm -hmm. versus the cow, right? Especially as I watch over the years, one cow line who has a big appetite and another cow line who does not have a big appetite, but they produce equally sized calves, right? You know, there's differences in feed efficiency there, even mm-hmm. if we're not measuring it. Yeah. And well, and there's been several studies that have, have shown associations between rumen microbiome and feed efficiency. And so, yeah, if that's something that that microbiome is being established by the association or the relationship with the dam, yeah, you know, that would be pretty cool. And you know, and I've had the idea too with these these beef on dairy calves of some studies. What if we looked at like uh, rumen fluid transplantation type stuff? I mean, you know, we're tubing these calves anyway with colostrum. You know, they're in a situation where we can easily get our hands on them again. You know, what if we 
used an already established microflora and added that to the rumen of those calves and what kind of impact would that have you know and yeah. there's just lots of interesting ideas that that i've had around that um because i mean there is many studies that i've seen particularly on that but that that but other transplantation studies where they they can take rumen fluid from a, an animal that is um you have a normal rumen pH and on a 40 and they transplant that into an animal that's acidotic and and it it shifts that animals right back to to kind of removing those negative effects of acidosis really quickly and so yeah and the microbiome is so tricky again like to your comment about the genetics by environment and i think there there was some nice work done many years ago i think it was Wisconsin where they took uh, cows who had better milk efficiency, this was dairy work, cows that had better basically milk efficiency versus cows with lower milk efficiency. They were ruminally cannulated. They basically did, they completely evacuated them and swapped their contents. They could shift the low efficiency cows into the high efficiency category, but only for a short period of time. And within a few weeks, I think, I think I want to say four to six weeks, they actually shifted back to their original category, which suggests there's something about that cow's rumen, likely because of her genetics, either the way that she eats or whatever's pH climates, whatever that's in her rumen that says whatever that, you know, more feed efficient bacteria was, he's not going to live here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, I've seen, I haven't seen that study, but yeah, stuff where the, the interaction with the host dictates to some degree that microbiome and, you know, we can culture and, and find the big, um, groups of bacteria, the major ones in all animals, but some of those smaller populations may be some of the more significant ones. And, and so what, what's our opportunity to manipulate that in, in, you know, a a kind of a dairy beef or a dairy situation would be a really good opportunity, I think, because um, I've got that calf in my control from day one. And if, you know, if I can manipulate something early on to to shift his microbial population in a certain way that makes him more efficient, makes him more healthy, you know, whatever, that would be, that would be pretty amazing. It would be, I think we might call that the magic pill right now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Are there other, um, so we've kind of talked quite a bit here about the liver abscess stuff with dairy beef. Are there other uh, lines of inquiry you're kind of chasing with dairy beef right now? Yeah. So it's, um, there, there are, um, there's one that's still related to liver abscess where we are trying to, um, cap, get some data on management practices at different calf ranches, different feed yards, and then make the connection between groups of cattle that are moving from calf ranches to feed yards. And then the prevalence of liver abscess in that lot of cattle at harvest. And, and so, you know, I've always had the thought that it, if this was something simple, we, we would have figured it out already. Um, and so it's, it's got to be, it's a multifactorial type of thing. And there's, you know, there's always been a lot of work done around diet and things like, and, and the results are kind of inconsistent in, in my opinion, when we try to manipulate something that worked in one study and it doesn't work in another. So our, our objective is to try to capture lots of different variables and then statistically sort out which ones are the most important when it comes to liver abscess. So we'll have diet information, we'll have you know 
health records and, and all, all kinds of stuff. So that's our, that's kind of our goal with that. It's a, it's a pretty ambitious um, project, but we've got some, we got some pretty good help um, from some people in the industry to, to get things going. Nice. Um, and you've got two graduate students that are working with you right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've got one that's working on that necropsy project and doing the, the GI work. Um, we actually did that for a second year. So she is currently putting together, she's looking at a bunch of slides of GI tissue uh, to take all those measurements um, on that second year. And hopefully we're going to see the same thing in the second year. And it wasn't just a, a fluke. Um, and then I've got another student who's just started and she's going to be handling this management practice um, projects to look at associations with liver abscess. Nice. So um, I know we talked about in your bio as well that, you know, environmental sustainability of the beef industry is one of the things that you're really interested in. So kind of maybe let's go in that direction a little bit. Tell us about some of the other things that you've got going on or, you know, you've been there for four years, you said. So are there Mm -hmm. some things you're starting to kind of put a bow on or some new areas that you're starting to explore in this field? Um, So um, one of the things that we've been working on in that area is from a kind of a computer simulation model um, angle where we did some, we've got a, a model that we, that was built um, right before I got here. There was a graduate student finishing up his PhD that built the original model when I, right when I started. Um, and we've used that model to evaluate um, kind of which, I don't know the factors is not the right word, but which variables in a cow-calf production system would have the most impact on improving environmental sustainability? Um, and so our what we did was we – it's a stochastic model, which means that it incorporates variation around an a average value. And it is um, dynamic in that it builds over time. So – Cows that don't get bred have to be sold. You have to have the number of replacement heifers the next year. And so it builds over time. And so we looked at over a 20-year um, span and and looked at manipulating. What if we manipulate the maintenance energy requirement of the herd? What if we manipulate the postpartum interval of the herd? Um, what if we manipulated the digestibility of the forage? Um, and um, then what if we imp- – um, could increase the productivity of forage um, from the land. And so the, the results of that point toward the, the, one of the biggest factors was the maintenance energy requirement of the herd, which is not too surprising, um, but it wasn't necessarily overwhelming um, compared to, um, from an economic standpoint, compared to the productivity of forage. Um, in the herd, or sorry, from the land. And so reducing those winter feed costs with more forage production had just as big impact on economic sustainability as it did as the reducing the maintenance energy requirement did. Um, but then the maintenance energy requirement was the biggest contributor to the reducing the environmental impact um, and, and the and efficiency of the, of the herd. So I'm curious if that was uh, 
geographically specific? Is that kind of with Kansas type parameters that you had around Mm -hmm. that? And, you know, would you think that that would look different if you were talking about an even more extensive system out West or maybe more intensive as we went East? Very possible. Yes, it was Kansas centric. It was based on Flint Hills native forage and um, Angus type cattle. We used Angus uh, EPDs in the genetic component of the model. And um, so, yes. And so that would be interesting. That's um, one of the, th- the things that I've been wanting to do with that model and just haven't gotten to it yet. And we have a, we're working on, we have a grant that we're to try to kind of do this same thing. But, um, you know, the, the study from the early 90s by Farrell and Jenkins, where they looked at the um, nutrition by gen- genetic interaction, basically on cow efficiency. And so, you know, we, we, we think that the, the genetic potential needs to be matched up with the nutritional environment of the, of the climate and the, the region. And so, you know, like you just said, it would be different types of animals as we go west in more extensive systems versus going east in more intensive, high nutritional environments. Um, but it's difficult to find that, that optimum. Where, what, what am I trying to f- get from a genetic standpoint? What size cow should that be? What should be the milk potential of that cow? And so I've been wanting to try to repeat that Farrell and Jenkins study with our simulation model and see if, I guess, one of two questions I have, do the NRC equations for growth and maintenance and stuff capture that G by E interaction or does a certain type of animal always end up being the most efficient just because of the way we calculate things? Um, and so then that, that tells me we're missing something about the biology. And then if it, if it does work, then I, you know, we have a tool I think that could be very useful um, from an extension standpoint to help identify the right genetics for the right production environment. Okay, so here's the question, and you work with systems more than I do, so you probably have a better understanding of this than me. When I think about the idea of saying, okay, we're going to make a change to a system or make a recommendation to a system, I totally, I hear everything you're saying. Try to get a cow who doesn't have to eat as much. Try to maximize our forage production or optimize our forage production, depending on our situation, and try to match those things. Mm -hmm. But how do we also take into account that if we end up selecting for a bunch of small cows that don't have big appetites, her sons are going to be like that. And when they come into my feedlot, they've now got to be on feed for an extra 30 plus days or something like that, or they don't, you know, they don't have the intake drive. So they, and you know, maybe we lose quality grade as a part of that. I don't know. I'm just throwing out ideas. Mm -hmm. How do we, how do we make sure that we look at the cow system and say, well, maybe we don't really want to discount this cow system if it means that there's a shorter feedlot system that comes after it, right? Because that's where we tend to get a lot of the societal pressures, right? Why are these cattle in confinement? Why are you harvesting corn to feed these animals, even though we do it to decrease all their energy costs, just exactly like you just talked about? Yeah. No, that, and that's a very good question, Stephanie, that, that um, you know, if you a lot of the data that I have seen on cow efficiency always tends to point to a smaller cow is more efficient at the cow-calf level. But then, like you said, that animal is going to be less efficient in the feedlot. And so how do we find that balance? And I think um, I think some of that is maybe the way we handle our, our genetic lines. You know, and I don't know if 
you know, this is not necessarily a, a question, research question that I can, can solve. Um, but, you know, do we need to work toward a lines that are more maternal and then we use more terminal sires to create those feeder calves um, where we can try to capture more of the best of both worlds, so to speak. We, we're not going to be able to maximize both, I don't think, um, but we can do a better job of getting toward the optimum in each sector of the industry with some of those types of tools. We just don't use them very well. And I don't know that we have, you know, you think about across e breed EPDs and some things like that, you got to have the right tools to make those genetic selections when we start crossing different breeds and, and different lines to, to get the right outcome. Absolutely. I've always loved the idea of terminal selection versus maternal and also at the same time, totally recognize the logistical challenges of trying to do something like that. You know, if you're a big extensive ranch and you say, well, I've got, you know, a, a 25% of my cows that are really the maternal genetics that I'd like to propagate. I'd really like to use things like sex semen. Well, that's silly. They're not AI in those, a lot of those cows anyway, because they don't have that opportunity. They're mm -hmm. out grains, you know, grazing range or things like that. So, and it's not like they're going to necessarily have enough land base to say, well, only the maternal line goes here with that bull and, you know, the terminal line goes here. And so, I mean, I think it's one of the cool things that us as feedlot nutritionists and beef nutritionists can keep thinking about what are the opportunities to continue to improve the efficiency of the system, but recognizing that it's a lot harder than it sounds. Mm, from a logistics standpoint, and for certain operations, you know, it doesn't necessarily work all that well, um, but then other operations may be able to do it. And and it's so it's, it, it is very situational dependent. You know, so I spent some time in Florida and there's several large ranches in Florida and you know, they use um, artificial insemination very little because of the large size and just the, the labor and time to run that many animals through a chute, you know, several times to, to sync the cycles. And so, um, but it, it frustrated our reproductive physiologists because they weren't using those new technologies, um, but it just logistically didn't work very well for them. So there are, there are definitely opportunities to, to improve what we've already done and try to make things just from a management perspective, make things work better. Absolutely. And again, it's another example of, you know, the opportunity to get multiple disciplines within beef industry to work together, the geneticists, the nutritionists, um, mm -hmm. you know, those that might work more on the extension side to get that knowledge out there. So that's always a great opportunity for us to, to continue to work together in the beef industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And I like that. The, some of the problems that we – well, especially so. So being a, a nutritionist in a vet school is a interesting um, dynamic, but I have, I have learned a lot in the last four years just from the fact that they look at problems from a different angle than I do or always did. And, and so, you know, it's, that, that interaction across disciplines is, is – really valuable. I mean, even we, sometimes we get stuck in our silos, you know, but, but man, that's so valuable. We can start to bring those different disciplines together to work on some of these problems. Absolutely. It's time for our famous three. 
Data shows most cattle don't get the vitamin D they need, especially in winter months. High D from DSM Fermaniche can ensure your cattle get the recommended vitamin D level to support bone strength, help immunity, and improve performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash hy-d to learn more. Well, I think, Philip, we've reached that time of the interview where it's time for our famous three questions. So I'll remind you of what these are. So our first question is, um, what is your favorite beef resource? Beef resource? You said like like knowledge resource? Yeah. So we've gotten like the NRC Mm -hmm. or a beef website from a university or, you know, certain Mm -hmm. producer magazine. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, being a nutritionist, the NRC is kind of my go-to thing for a lot of things. But, um, you know, um, I think probably a lot of it is, I'll say people, like just going to conferences and visiting with people. Um, So here recently, I went to a conference that was focused just on beef on dairy stuff. And, you know, just it was small where you could have some good discussions and and so it was very, very educational just to be able to talk to people more one-on-one about different things and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, I just say people. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I love those small conferences too. I hate the big ones. I think it's fun to just go to the smaller ones, especially when they're super specialized and you can just be a total nerd about something for a few days and you're not just distracted by everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every, okay. everybody's there with this fa- the same mindset, thinking about the same thing. Yes, but perhaps from a different perspective, uh-huh. like you said. So you've got the vets and the nutritionists and the geneticists and the you know calf raisers and the packers who are dealing with what's coming down the rail all in the same room. I love that. Mm-hmm. Okay, second question. Uh, what is something not related to beef that you are reading or watching or listening to right now? Um, let's see. Well, so I guess probably one of the things I spend a lot of my time on that is not beef related is I have two boys, 10 or no, 11 now and eight that are into sports. They're, they play, they're playing tackle football this fall. They're getting ready to start basketball. Um, Sometimes I'm involved in coaching and sometimes I'm just coaching on the sidelines, you know, but I've, I've found myself, I start to, to, pay more attention and watching videos and things like this on how to teach them how to do this better, or do that better. And so I've, I've gotten in, into the, uh, the sports, um, what's the word I'm looking for, but, um, just like coaching. Yeah. I get coaching and, and just the, um, you may have to cut this out cause I can't think of the right <laughs> word. But the like, just all the the information that's out there, you know, all the YouTube videos and all of that that kind of stuff, and the Facebook groups and that kind of, you know, all those kind of things that that provide a lot of information that on how to how to coach and and how to improve a, a kid's performance. You know, it wasn't available when when I was a kid. You had the only thing you had was the knowledge of the person that was assigned to be a coach. You know, you know, and so it, it's a whole new world out there from when I was a kid. So I'm curious if you find yourself taking that coaching mentality to your classroom or to your graduate student mentoring. You know, that's a good question. And I guess 
Probably some. I mean, my my perspective of the classroom and stuff has changed um, in the last few years where I try to make it much more of a discussion and a like and a, a student led thing as much as I can. Where instead of because I, I don't like just standing in front of the classroom and spewing information at them. I would much rather have it be a back and forth. And so I've tried to make my classes as much discussion based as I think I can without it being total chaos and um, and things like that. And then and then graduate students the same way. I've I guess a little bit I have. In the last few years, we've, we've got some really good graduate students. I can't brag on them enough, but I have become a lot more hands-off. Is like, okay, here's the guidelines. Here's your project. Here's our objectives. You know, it's 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 your baby. You you make it what you want it to be, and and dig into it. And, you know, nerd out on it as much as you want, so to speak. Um, where in the past, I was a little bit more controlling about, oh, we need to do this and need to do that and, and needed to be more involved. So nice. I think that's the evolution of confidence that we get as we get more experienced mentoring and stuff. And we, my students sometimes will be like, how do you always know what we're going to screw up? And I'll be like, cause the last 12 students screwed up the exact same thing. And I screwed it up when I was in grad school. It's just one of the things we're destined to repeat. And I just try to cut it off at the pass as best as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've learned from repetition. Absolutely. I'm a slow learner, but I get there eventually. <laughs> Okay. Last question is, what is a trait of someone you know that you think has helped make them successful? Let me see. I think this one stumped me the last time. It always Um, does. It stumps everybody. (laughs) It's a tough question. So, um, you know, I think one thing is, I'm trying to name, think of somebody particular, but just keeping things in perspective um, as far as, you know, what's the big picture here? You know, we, we can get tied up on small things that we put way too much importance on. And, you know, what what's the big picture here? And so, you know, kind of back to our previous question, my, my philosophy towards students has changed in that um, my – my goal is to, to help them get where they want to go. This part of this grad school and part of their undergrad is, is helping them build the career that they want and where they want to go um, as much as it is accomplishing, you know, whatever we're, project we're doing or whatever right here in the immediate time. And so um, keeping that bigger picture in mind has helped out a lot with just mentoring those students and and thinking about the other aspects of their development rather than just their um, technical knowledge. Absolutely. I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us again here today, Philip. It's been great to catch up and I always enjoy the topics that we got to talk about today. So we will look forward to having you on again uh, sometime in the near future. And until then, we'll say goodbye to everyone. Uh, Thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate it.